Hey, my name is Brianna, and you're listening to the FCC Grayson Podcast. God is doing some incredible things here at First Church. To learn more about FCC and maybe plan your visit, head on over to FCCGrayson.com. We hope today's message gives you hope, inspires, and encourages you in your walk with God. Let's dive into today's message. It's good to see all of you here. If you're visiting with us here, if you're a first-time guest or this is one of your first times with us, my name is uh, Ben James. I'm the lead pastor here. It's uh, so good to see everyone and welcome everyone who, are, who is watching us online and worshiping with us there. I'm going to uh, ask if you would, if you would just go ahead and, and bow your heads and let's pray together this morning. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he might grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So you may have noticed that's actually our scripture passage this morning. It's Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Paul finally gets to his prayer, basically, is what happens here. If you'll remember at the beginning a couple weeks ago when we started into chapter 3, Paul started with that very same phrasing, for this reason. And then he was kind of sidetracked like we as preachers tend to get from time to time He got a little sidetracked and decided he needed to add another point to his message in his letter here that he was writing to the church at Ephesus. But as we begin to talk about this prayer this morning, as we begin to dissect it and look at it a little bit point by point here, I want to make sure that we understand that Paul is still in context of his writing. When he says, for this reason, again, this is the second time that he has echoed this in chapter 3. For what reason? That's kind of, you know, for this reason is a conjunctive statement that's kind of hearkening back to something that was said before. It's kind of like a therefore statement that Paul is writing. So for this reason, for what reason? Well, see chapters 1 and 2. See what Paul has talked about in leading up to this because he's, he has been explaining to them the, what we have access to as believers through God's Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ into this relationship that we have with God. And then he begins to pray this prayer over the church that he's writing to. So for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Understand that bowing in the Jewish culture is still to this day not a common position of prayer. If you've ever seen videos or if you've ever been to Israel, if you've ever seen news highlights where 
people are praying at the wailing wall, they are standing, facing the wall. So this phrase from Paul carries a lot of weight. It shouldn't be something that we overlook because of the cultural implication that it has here. Paul is making a big distinction, and his readers, especially those who would have had a Jewish background in the Jewish faith that had converted to Jesus Christ, they would have understood a a level of significance to this statement that I bow my knee. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time here, but bowing your knees, and this, there's not a right or wrong posture of prayer. Uh, you know, we, we think oftentimes that of the humility of prayer, and we should. And bowing your knees before the Father is an act of humility, and we see that out of the Apostle Paul here. But we also get this indication that when one hits their knees, they're doing so out of desperation. They're doing it out of humility. They're doing it out of desperation. They're doing it out of awe and reverence. And I found out this week that one can bow their knees before the Father out of sheer panic as well. And I would like to inform you of what put me on my knees before the Father this week in sheer panic. I believe it was Wednesday. We were here in the office and usually, we, we try to meet for coffee and talk about things before the day gets started. And while we were sitting there talking about coffee, you know, we're drinking our coffee, talking about the day, one of the most important aspects of the day was being discussed. What are we doing for lunch? Right? I mean, and then when you're having lunch, I'm texting my wife going, what, what are we doing for dinner? But we decided that the three of us, myself, Thomas, and Jacob, we were going to to go to Trace that that particular day. And uh, so we we all, you know, we've got this this plan, this this scheme, and this, uh, the way that we approach things that we we try to beat the lunch rush to anywhere. Uh, So we decided, hey, at 1130, if if all is going well here, we're not busy in the office, then we're going to do that. So we go outside, and as we're walking outside, I'm, I'm reminded that as my daughter has been moving back home, it's amazing how much stuff accumulates into a small dorm room over the span of a couple short years, but she has decided that she wants to redo her room there at the house. So we've not unloaded everything from the vehicles because I don't want to move it in, move it back out while she's redoing some things. So I, I look at the guys, and I'm like, I, I don't have room for all three of us in my car. Um, you know, and, and Thomas didn't have a driving option at that point. And I looked at Jacob, and I went, Jacob, is your, does your car have room for the three of us? Yeah. All right, we'll just ride with you. So we get to the car. Thomas hops into the back seat. It's a two-door car. Thomas gets into the back seat because, well, he's significantly younger and spryer than I am and can navigate that better than I can. But Jacob is parked right, it would be right out here. Uh, and where the divider is in our parking lot there, you know, the concrete divider, he is pulled in facing that. And so we get in, we're sitting there, we get buckled up. Jacob starts the vehicle and then he puts it in to go. And apparently he's really excited about eating at Trace because the go gear he put it in was not the go gear to back away from the concrete. It was the go gear that sent us on top of the concrete. 
So, boom, there we go on top of the concrete. And Jacob, if you've ever talked with Jacob, you are going to understand this look and this phrasing. Boom, we hop up on there and he stops. He's like, oh. And then he just very calmly just reaches over, puts it in the go gear called reverse. Bam! Comes back off of there. So for this reason, I bowed my knees before the Father (laughs) all the way down to Trace (laughs) and then all the way back. And you know, we get accused a lot as preachers of exaggerating stories when we're up here. I want to ask Jacob, he's running, Jacob, have I exaggerated anything this morning? No, okay, all right. Didn't exaggerate anything when I was talking about Billy Murray last week either. I just want to have that side note. But let's start, let's look at this prayer. Uh, because have you ever, has there ever been anything, like maybe a biblical promise, that you read and you just have difficulty with? You have difficulty with a biblical promise, and not from the thing of maybe that you, not, not necessarily that you don't like it, you don't understand it, But maybe you have difficulty wrapping your head around it and thinking that can really happen. Like, I'm reading this. I know what it says. I know what's happening here. I know what the writer or the author or the person who's speaking, I know what they're trying to tell me, but I just don't know how that happens. There's a couple of them for me. Uh, One is John uh, chapter 14, verse 12. And that's Jesus saying that, hey, not only these works that I am doing will you do, but also greater works than these shall you do. What? I mean, think about that statement. Here's Jesus saying that you're going to do the same works that I've done. Last I checked, I've not even come close to doing what Jesus did much less greater things. So my mind finds that almost impossible to wrap itself around that statement that not only can I do what Jesus did, but greater things than that. And another one of the promises that I have difficulty wrapping my head around is in chapter 3 of what we just went over, and that's verse 20. So I want to read that to you real quickly. Chapter 3, verse 20 says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. It's a pretty amazing promise, isn't it? I mean, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Now, I do want to make sure, this is going to be a little bit of a side note, and I've kind of wrestled this week with how much time to spend here, Um, but the passage out of John chapter 14, verse 12, and this, Ephesians 3.20, are two of the most taken out of context promises in Scripture. There's a handful of them, and most all of them are tied to a prosperity gospel theology approach. I heard someone say one time out of John 14, 12, which says greater, you know, not only my works, but greater things does he going, are you going to do. They make the statement and they wave the banner of God is bigger than his word. So we can't be limited. We can't be hindered by the word of God. 
And while I believe that to be a holy, true statement that God is bigger than his word, because there's nothing bigger than God, the fact of the matter is, is if we're using Scripture to try to perpetuate us laying claim of what we want, our desires, our fleshly wants and desires, then there's a problem. And it's also the same thing when we grasp at this Ephesians 3.20, out of context, and out of the realm of the writing that the author is presenting it in. Because we have this mindset sometimes that I'm going to grab a verse out of Scripture, I'm going to pull it individually, and I'm going to stand on it. So, God, I'm going to, you are able to do far more abundantly all that I can ask or think according to the power. And then it can get into dangerous territory as to what we're asking about. So with that in mind, I want us to look at five purpose clauses that we see in this passage. Now I say purpose clauses, we can simplify that and say steps. Because what Paul gives us here is this is a prayer of progression to get to verse 20. So verse 20 is the end destination in this prayer. So Paul begins this journey over here. So let's begin to look at five steps, five purpose clauses that take us on this journey to get to this place to where we make this statement of him who's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or that we think. So let's look at these purpose statements or these purpose clauses. First, we find in verse 16, and it says, that according, those two words right there, that according is a purpose clause. That means to get to verse 20 is going to be impossible without this step right here. So verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Step one, being strengthened in our inner being. Let me give you another phrase for that. Depending on God's spirit in your life. Being strengthened in your inner being means that we recognize that the Holy Spirit, as we have repented, as we have asked for forgiveness of our sins, as we've been baptized, as we've turned our life over to Jesus Christ and am serving him as not only my Savior but my Lord, that there is a recognition that his Holy Spirit has come to reside in me at that point, and that is the source that I need to draw my strength from. Amen? I will not be able to find my strength from looking at what this world has to offer. I will not be able to get strength, true, lasting, peace-giving strength if I look at a cultural climate, if I look at an economic climate, if I look at a political climate, if I look at the fact that Chick-fil-A is running out of sauce. I'm not going to find strength there. But when I look to what God has gifted me, to when I look at that part of him that he has promised that he is now dwelling in me in his spirit, then I find my strength. 
I find that inner source of peace that no matter, Kevin talked about these 14 months of turmoil and trial and all of this stuff that we've been going through, these situations and circumstances that are completely and totally leading us seemingly through or into utter chaos. Folks, as a believer, were we affected and are we affected by all of this? Absolutely, absolutely we are. But our hope and our source of strength should have never been shaken through this process. Because the inner strength is his Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. And you know, one of the things, a little practical side note here, one of the things that the Holy Spirit, what I call the Holy Spirit's job description that we see in Scripture, is to lead us into all truth. There are so many things out there that the enemy is trying to use against us to convince us to try to pull our gaze away from God and convince us that God's word is no longer true. Here's a simple little litmus test. If you hear something, if you see something, if you're going through something, if you have to make a decision and discern through something, pray this prayer. Holy Spirit, is this true? It's pretty simple, right? But part of what he does in a believer's life is that he leads you into all truth. So step one, purpose clause number one, be strengthened in your inner man. Second, verse 17, so that, again, purpose clause, whenever you see that, so that leads us to something. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Second step, make sure Christ is dwelling in your heart. Now, wait a minute. You just said we had his Holy Spirit dwelling in us. If what's going on here with this Christ thing that you're talking about dwelling in our hearts? I'm glad you asked. The key word here is dwell. And it comes from a Greek word as it's saying, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Kato okesai. Kato okesai is the Greek word that Paul uses here. And it's a compound word of three different Greek words, and we're not going to go into those, but when Paul puts this compound word into here, it means to settle and make yourself at home. To be settled and to make yourself at home. So what does that mean in the context of verse 17, where it's talking about Christ dwelling that means that Christ comes into your heart and you've made room for him to settle and make himself at home in your heart and in your life. So what does that look like? Well, I, I can tell you what it looks like for me. I usually wake up and when I leave the house, dreams and visions of my recliner are already dancing in my head for when I get back home that evening. I'm a pretty simple person. I live a pretty simple existence. You know I talk about food all the time, and I enjoy food in my recliner. That's what drives me. But if I have something going on at our house, has anybody ever like hosted something? You've invited someone or a group of people over to your house, and you realize about an hour away that the house looks like a train wreck, and you kind of do that fly to the bumblebee thing through the house of just shoving stuff into random closets and random rooms and hoping that nobody goes in there? Any, anybody? Or is that just me? Okay, okay. Hopefully there's a few of you there. Um, 
If I've got something going on, you know, if we're hosting something, I don't go home immediately after work and find in the midst of so many things to be done that I can just sit and take my mind off of things. No. I go home, I start working on getting things ready and getting things prepared. If I've got someone coming, then I want to get everything I can done and be prepared. That should be the same way in our hearts. Christ wants to dwell in your heart. He wants to be able to make himself comfortable and at home in our lives. But I can guarantee you one thing, if we don't have that first step of that inner strength, of that Holy Spirit, us not having our hope shaken, us not having our outlook and perspective shaken, if we're trying to find strength and hope and peace everywhere else, guess what? Jesus isn't going to be able to be comfortable in your life. Because he's not going to be able to be at home and be at rest and be at peace. So first, be strengthened by your inner person and your inner being by the power of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, have Christ dwell in your heart. Make, prepare a place for him so that he can come in. Thirdly, we also find in verse 17, in the second part, that you, again, purpose clause, that you being rooted and grounded in love. So we need to be established in God's love. So that's, that's the third step. Be established in God's love. What does that look like? What, does that, what might that mean? That also means that no matter what the situation, if you're rooted and grounded, you're not going to be questioning the love of God. You're not going to be questioning why. Now, on a very deep level, because I want us to understand, it's not going to get to the place that it's going to cause us to compromise our faith. But we are established in God's love, and we understand the Romans 8.28 concept that, that for those that are in Christ Jesus, that he works things out for our good. We understand the Genesis 50-20 portion of it also where Joseph looks at his brothers and says that even though that you meant it as evil against me, God meant it for good. That we look at our world, we look at our brothers and sisters in Christ, we look at our community, we look at our nation, we look at our world, and we look at them through a rooting and a grounding and establishment in the love of God. We talked about this last week, that people are not our enemies. And when we're established, rooted, and grounded in God's love, then that is the lens that we see people through. Regardless of whether they're just like us or that they could not be more different than us in all areas of life. We're rooted, grounded, and established in God's love. So that's the third one. First one is being strengthened in our inner being. Second one is having Christ dwelling in our hearts and in our lives. Thirdly, being established in his love. And the fourth one we find in verse 18 where it says that we may have, again, it's a purpose clause. It's leading us somewhere. That we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height and the depth. The Greek word there for uh, what's in this word, in, in this translation, comprehend, 
actually means to make your own. To make your own. Doesn't mean that we ever reach full understanding of the love of God, but what we do is that we make His love our own. So we not only are established in His love, but we comprehend His love. That's step number four, is we comprehend His love, which means that we make it our own. So what does that look like? Well, that looks like that if you're loving anyone at any time, in any situation, contrary to what the love of God looks like, you're not comprehending the love of God because you've not made it your own. See, here's where we struggle with this. If I'm proactively loving someone, if I have Kennedy as a target, that I'm going to love my sister like God wants me to love her, that I make his love my own towards her, then I, I can do that fairly successfully most of the time when it's proactive. The challenge I believe most of us have is whenever we need to love with the love of God when it becomes reactionary. Whenever Kennedy may do something that offends me, or when she does something that I don't agree with, or when the core of who she is is not the core of who I am, or when she holds a different belief than I hold, or when she holds a different ideology than what I hold. Whenever that surfaces, it's more challenging for me to love with a love of comprehension from God reactively and in response to that than what it is me purposing to do that. You see, Jesus' proactive love was always the love of the Father. But what about his reactive love? Well, I think that's pretty much spelled out for us whenever he's hanging on a cross. And he utters the phrase, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. He's in the midst of it. He's reacting. But guess what? He still comprehends the love of God. And that's what we need to do also. Is it easy? No. Comprehend the love of God. Make his love your own. And then verse 19. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Here's the next purpose clause. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Does that statement not blow anyone else's mind this morning? That you may be filled with the fullness of God. That's a lot. And also, notice the Trinity reference in here again. This is about the third or fourth time that Paul's referenced the Trinity in a passage of Scripture, this time in his prayer. The first step was to what? Be strengthened in your inner being by the Holy Spirit, right? The second one was that you have Christ, the Son, to dwell in your heart. And now, this last point, he's saying the fullness of God. Notice these steps. Be strengthened in your inner being. You got that? You move on to having Christ dwelling in your heart. If you've got that, then you move on to this 
this establishing, this rooting, this grounding in God's love. And when you do that, then that rooting, that grounding, that establishing in God love, God's love becomes visible in your life, and you begin to comprehend it. You begin to make it your own. It becomes the love that you love with. And then when these are in place, that's when you're ready to receive the fullness of God in your life. And then, when those five things, when those five purpose clauses, when those five steps are taken and those boxes are checked, what verse do we come to? We come to verse 20, where it says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly all that we ask, but he doesn't stop there. Not only is he far more able to do abundantly than all that we ask, but also what we think and imagine. You see, guys, the promises of God aren't something that's like a spiritual vending machine or a spiritual pinata that we whack away at until we finally break through into the purpose. What Paul's saying here in this verse 20, I mean, is amazing. And that should encourage all of us because we serve a God that is able to do far more abundantly all that we ask or think according to the work of the power that's inside of us. But understand that this is not something that we walk up to, put a couple quarters in and say a couple prayers and then go, oh, I want A5. That looks good. Exceedingly abundantly more. Boom. Hey, I'm going to follow that with doing greater works than Christ. B1. All right, there we go. I feel like I'm calling bingo out here for just a second. There is things that are required of us. And it's not just that we go to God whenever we want something. Whenever we feel like we really need it, we really desire it. No. These things, this promise, which I want in my life. And by a show of hands, verse 20, how many of you would like to see this happening in your life, this promise? But exceedingly abundantly more than all you can think or ask. Yeah. Guess what? It's going to require something of you. It's going to require relying on the Holy Spirit as your source of strength. It's going to require you making room and making Jesus welcome in your life. It's going to require you establishing, rooting, and grounding yourself in God's love. It's going to require you comprehending or making his love your own. And then it's going to require you getting and receiving and operating in this fullness of God. So in the next couple verses, let's, let's kind of start to wrap this up. We see at the end of verse 20 the how. How do we do this? Well, it happens according to the power at work within us. See, Paul's referencing back, this is the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, reference. But he doesn't just say it happens because the Holy Spirit's in you. He says it happens because of the Holy Spirit's work in you. Again, it goes back to how much are you allowing the Holy Spirit to work through you this morning? How much are you allowing the Holy Spirit to do through you? How surrendered is your life to God's Holy Spirit that's dwelling inside of you? That's the how. 
Now the why is answered in verse 21. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. All of this is for Christ's glory. You know, we, we read the scripture also that, you know, the Father will give us everything we ask in prayer if we do not ask amiss. Anybody familiar with that passage? We, we kind of cling on to that one. That's one of them that we hope on. That we, we, we really like to secure that promise. Understand that every promise that God makes to us, for us, or through us, is for his glory, not ours. So if you're wanting Ephesians 3.20 to be true in your life, but you're wanting it for your glory or for your benefit only, then guess what? You're asking amiss because it is for the glory of God. Whenever he does the things that abundantly beyond what we can ask or think or imagine. He's doing these things so that more people can be drawn to him, so that his glory is seen more evident in your life. And more importantly, as this passage says, it's done so his glory is revealed even more in our church and through his bride. It's because of his glory. I want to ask the praise team, if they will, to come on back up this morning. Um, a question that I had rolling through my mind just as I was coming in this morning, as I was driving into the office this morning, I had this question rolling through my mind. If we're looking at verse 20 again, able to do far more abundantly all that we ask or think. If God gave you everything that you ask for, what would that look like? What would you have? Everything that you're verbally asking for. What, what would it look like? And you know, and for the most part, I, I, when I had to answer that to myself, I was thinking, okay, you know, what I, what I ask God for, I'm pretty picky and choosy about, you know, because I, I definitely want to make sure that I'm not praying wrong. You know, I, I, I try. I don't always get it right, but I try. So when I ask, hopefully, if I get all of those things, it looks good, right? Let's go beyond that, though. What if God were to give you right now, currently, everything that you think or even imagine? How godly would that look? How much glory would God get from those, from those thoughts, from those imaginations, from those wishes? You see, the problem that I found in my life this morning is those purpose clauses don't always line up. And the sad part is, is they don't line up far more often than what they do. And that's just me being honest with you. I'm not always strengthened in my inner man, in my inner being. I'm not always in that place where I feel like I think that Jesus is comfortable in my heart not always established in his love. I'm not always, I'm not always working. I don't always make it my own. I don't always comprehend his love. And I'm not always walking around in the fullness of God. So therefore, what I ask, what I think, what I imagine is most likely off target to bring him glory. 
So think about that this morning. Think about what is going through. Think about these steps in your life. As we have prayed this prayer, as we've examined this prayer, this is not a prayer that stopped or ceased with the church at Ephesus. It's applicable for us today. And we need to have it in front of us each and every day.